Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about whatever my guest and I feel like talking about and fame. I'm Jamie Berger. This is episode 55, and my guest is comedian, staff writer for Conan, and author, most recently, of the memoir, Dead People Suck, Lori Kilmartin. A couple of quick notes before we dive into that conversation. One is that this will be one of the last few episodes that will be available on SoundCloud. We, as I mentioned in the last episode, have moved over to a new and stellar host, Pippa. Pippa.io. Check them out. I'll tell you more as soon as they want to finalize our official sponsorship deal. Um, so SoundClouders, look for us on Pippa or on iTunes or on Stitcher or on many of the other places that you can find podcasts or brand new on Spotify by searching for 15 minutes and my name. Something else I wanted to tell you about is that due to the vicissitudes of editing, uh, at one point I mentioned he or him or his without saying who it was because we started to talk a little bit about Michael Ian Black, and then I thought what we what I said was dumb, so that part is gone, except that I say his recent article, uh, his recent uh, Twitter thread and article, and we talk about that for a little bit. And so that's Michael Ian Black I'm speaking about. And the recent Twitter thread and article, uh, and, uh, he wrote, um, started with a Twitter thread that caused a lot of stir, as he is wont to do, which led to him writing a New York Times op-ed piece called The Boys Are Not All Right. And it's from February 21st in the New York Times, Michael Ian Black, well worth a read. And I'll read the beginning of it for you. See if you think you want to go. Give it a read. He starts off, I used to have this one-liner. If you want to emasculate a guy friend when you're in a restaurant, ask him everything that he's going to order, and then when the waitress comes, order for him. It's funny because it shouldn't be that easy to rob a man of his masculinity. But it is. He continues, Last week, 17 people, most of them teenagers, were shot dead at a Florida school. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School now joins the ranks of Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, Columbine, and too many other sites of American carnage. What do these shootings have in common? Guns, yes, but also boys. Girls aren't pulling the triggers. It's boys. It's almost always boys. America's boys are broken, and it's killing us. The brokenness of the country's boys stands in contrast to its girls, who still face an abundance of obstacles but go into the world increasingly well-equipped to, ta to take them on. The past 50 years have redefined what it means to be a female in America. Girls today are told that they can do anything, be anyone. They've absorbed the message. They're outperforming boys in school at every level. But it isn't just about performance. To be a girl today is to be the beneficiary of decades of conversation about the complexities of womanhood, its many forms and expressions. Boys, though, have been left behind. And I'll leave it at that. That was Michael Ian Black 
we talk a little bit about that, but I thought it 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 brought up a conversation I've been having for a while. February twenty first, New York Times. Laurie Kilmartin has been a stand up for a long, long time. We talk about it. She's also been a writer for Conan for a very long time, and she also hosts the Jackie and Laurie show with uh, Jackie Cation, which is a kind of an insider comics uh, look at the world and gigs and writing and their job uh, that I think is really fun as an outsider. Check it out, the Jackie and Laurie show. Oh, and by show, they mean podcast. And in case anyone didn't know, by Conan, I mean O'Brien. But the reason she's on this show is that she has a book to promote. And it's called Dead People Suck. And it's a comedic but also moving memoir about her father's death mixed with a tongue-in-cheek how-to guide on dealing with the death of a loved one. Laurie and I talked about the book, which she claimed will be her last, about writing for Conan, uh, the life of a stand-up, the joys and hazards of making jokes about one's living mother and dead father, and of course about fame and what she sees as her place in the comedy world. And because you all know that I have that magical gift of making funny people unfunny by asking them only serious questions, I've included a couple of clips from her album that also is on the same topic, 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. Laurie Kilmartin and I spoke in February. Hello? Hey, Lori. Hey, I wasn't sure. I don't Skype enough to know if I'm doing it right all the time, so. I, I have that same problem, and I, I do it way too much to be so confused. <laughs> I just enjoyed the book a lot. I listened to it. Because despite all my many degrees in English, I don't read any books anymore. <laughs> but the first thing that came to mind as as both, you know, I, enjoying the the book and being a comedy fan is so here you are it's four years later in a few weeks right since your dad died yeah is it like calling up an old set to, to do this book promo is it a little bit like does it feel how does it feel it, it feels a lot like that because i because um even when i'm reading it at, at bookstores which i've done a couple of book readings i'm like oh yeah this <laughs> and it just and I, and I remember, you know, like I wrote that in August or I wrote that in, you know, last April and it, um, I feel done with it. Like I, 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 you know, I wrote it and then I tweaked it and I tweaked it again and he tweaked it 7,000 times and it feels done. And it's so strange to read it again. Cause I feel like, oh, this, oh, this is finished. Why am I dragging this out again? Mm -hmm. Um, and yet I'm sure you're doing a professional job because that's, that's what you do. That's my hope. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I say that because I I made a, I know you're from the Bay Area, and I made a horrible year long attempt, uh, in the mid to late '90s, at doing stand up after doing you know the theater and performance stuff, and I just couldn't, I couldn't call things up, uh, like they're spontaneous, 
time and time again. And when I watch Friends, uh, Eugene Merman's a friend of mine, and I watch him do the same joke years later. And, of course, it's still fresh to an audience. And, uh, but it's a special uh, talent. Yeah, I think that's, that's like half the skill is acting like you're not bored with the thing you're about to say. <laughs> you know, and it's even worse because you wrote it. Like, I guess if you're an actor, you can be like, oh, this, I'm tired of Shakespeare. Enough with this guy. You know, you can get mad at somebody, but it's like, you know, it's like I did this to myself. I made this joke. So now I'm forcing myself to say it. It's almost crueler. And I know that your answer to getting good at that is stage time, but I did not feel that I would ever get there. And, and Eugene and I have the 10 year argument that you're a big proponent of too. Like put 10 years in and you can do this. But I don't know. When I was going to the cafes in San Francisco, I saw people who'd been grinding away, and I didn't think they were ever going to get funny. Well, I, I think ten years of it, it, when they when you say for stand up too, it's ten years of writing and rewriting and changing and dropping things if they don't work. I mean, that's part of stand up is going, you know, being honest and going, oh, this one's never going to take, and letting it go. And, uh, and also, you know, going to different kind of venues, that's part of it is going up in front of different kind of crowds. So I, I think if someone were to do that every night or six nights a week for 10 years, you know, I think of a polished comic at the end of that time. You know, I do know there's people that you keep, they keep showing up and they keep having the same 10 minutes and it's like decade after decade. And you're like, wow, you just, you're just in this groove and this is, this is enough for you, I guess. Yeah, uh, I I think you you said something on on your podcast about uh, home. You didn't say hometown heroes. You you gave it a great name for the people who just don't want to don't want to go to New York or L.A. They just want to be the stay the star, hosting the open mic in their hometown. Yeah, yeah. I think every every like mid sized comedy town has one person that you know everyone's like, oh, if you'd have gone to LA, you'd have been huge. And that sort of sentiment is almost enough for them. Mm -hmm. And they can be kind of like the big shot where they are. Yeah. And, you know, and you know, it's easy to criticize them, but it's a risk that some people just don't want to take. I mean, sure. Yeah. I get it now. <laughs> yeah. 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 I get it. <laughs> One question that I had over and over as I, as I listened to the book was, does your mom, <laughs> does she, does she read it and or how does she feel? I mean, I know they're jokes, but as someone who my mom died and I was very attached to her, my dad, I'm 53, he's 89. So I related a lot to the, to the book as a, as a preparation. Sorry, dad. Uh, but you're, you're a little hard on your mom. Probably. I guess, I guess so. She's down the hall. Oh shit. <laughs> and she lives with me. I I feel like I earned the right to be hard on her because she lives with me and she, you know, she, she shows, she's always a presence in my life. Um, but, uh, she's, she's reading it now and she's, her only comment was that, uh, she was afraid that because I had a chapter about, you know, men should shred their porn. She's like, are people going to think your dad had porn? And I said, I don't, I didn't say that dad did, but you know, that was, that was like one of those things where you start going through some stuff you're like oh god please don't let me find it and i didn't so maybe he would have had a you know more fun life if he had a little porn <laughs> 
So um, it is It is tough to lose a parent. Uh, it's even tougher if you were hoping to lose the other parent first. Uh, uh, my mom is a pistol. And that that's what you want to put in your mouth when she talks to you. A loaded pistol. Uh, I'm not the only one who uh, feels that way. My dad's last words to me were, ha ha, she's your problem now. <laughs> and then he ascended to heaven like a conquistador. <laughs> that reminds me, guys, if, if there's any... Um, uh, if, it, if there's any joke here tonight that's too rough, uh, I, I want you to know uh, that you have my uh, my feminist permission to stare at my boobs <laughs> until you feel better. Uh, they're pretty big. People seem to enjoy them. I don't even. I do a disservice by calling them boobs. This is a bosom. <laughs> it's a. This is matriarchal. This is comforting. So. If there's any time where you like cringe a little, you just mentally put your head right between lefty and righty and <laughs> let them go. <laughs> They're very comforting. My favorite line of the whole book is you will be a sad Spock surrounded by wildly panicking boneses. <laughs> but I don't remember the context. I wrote it down in the middle. I think that's in the atheist chapter of just those people that are super logical about death and um, how annoying that can be if you're not one of them and how annoying it can be if you're surrounded by people that are, you know, wailing and crying and, and insisting they're going to see their loved one in heaven. And you're like, nah, you're, you're done. You're yes. Done. Yes. And I, when I read that, I, I feared that I was the, the worst level of atheist, but, but <laughs> listening to you talk, I listened to your, your Pete Holmes episode. Um, mm. and you guys seem to have a really good time. Uh, yeah. but when I hear you and even someone who is ostensibly more religious, like, like Pete talk about, you know what you sound like when I hear you talk about religion, you sound like an atheist. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm open to, I, I was mostly thinking about my one friend who's a total grump who I consider the ultimate atheist to, you know, Bernie Sanders voter hates everything. It, like every time I bring up anything good, he, he has a bad, he, he tells me the bad side of it. So I, I often think of him as the ultimate atheist. Boy, do I know that grumpy Bernie voter. <laughs> I mean, he's right. He's probably right about everything, but like, do you have to be mired in reality all the time? Can't, can't you have a little fantasy somewhere in your life? Yeah. And mired in being right as the only worthwhile thing to be right you know what i mean it's okay to be wrong i mean i never mind i we're not I don't want to go, let's not go too deep down that hole okay have you have you had any people take offense to the book i mean seriously i get a reading or no but i i you know i'm used to doing performing stand-up in front of audiences like comedy club audience audiences obviously and um I, I've done two readings where I'm like, wow, people that come to book readings are very different from a club audience. Obviously, I mean, you're in a well-lit place, there's no drinks, and it's, um, 
So I, my instinct was to go right to the, what I thought was the funnier chapters right off the bat. And people seemed aghast at some of the jokes. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, well, all right, well, maybe I should like read one that's not that funny, but sort of explains everything and sort of slowly lower people into my sense of humor, which I, I of course, used to doing at a comedy club. I'm used to just starting and then telling jokes until, you know, I get the light. In, in the live portions from, from the, from the audiobook, were you in a, in a club or a bookstore? I was in a club. I was at the stand in New York City on 20th and 3rd. And the audience was a bunch of people in the publishing industry. It was like Friday after o'clock, and they all came down. It was a it was an open bar. So it was a pretty packed room of people getting drunk at the end of the week and uh, but not too drunk. So it was, it was good. And not the normal uh, comedy club uh, crowd. Because I think repeatedly you 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 noted you noted and once said you said starts as a laugh goes to a moan. <laughs> yes, you seem to very much enjoy that. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather do readings at comedy clubs than at a bookstore, but that's not the way the book industry is. So, oh yeah. well. But you seem to like getting the moan, the groan. Oh yeah, I don't mind that. I don't mind that. Uh, one thing that I noticed in my in my little. Laurie Kilmartin immersion course in the past week is that, uh, of course, I went to saw your IMDb, and I also heard you talking with. Uh, oh, it'd be awful to to just call her the woman who was Adam Carolla's sidekick, but I can't think of her name. Oh, Allison Rosen. Yes, and oh, you said that your dream was to be an actress, and I noticed that. I, I would assume now, if you wanted to, you could try to. Do some, but is it just that once one is, you know, you're almost 30 years into being comic and writer, does one not, would you want to go try to act some more? Oh, sure. I would love to. I took a ton of acting classes um, in New York. So yeah, I, I would love to. But right now, I mean, I can't go on auditions really. And uh, that would have to be at another time in my life. Did you, have you seen his... Uh thread or times op-ed piece about boys are broken yeah i did read that it was great i thought it'd be interesting to talk to you because a you're raising a boy b you clearly you know clearly we're not going to get into any arguments about this stuff um I, i'm pretty sure and c i heard you talking to ms rosen was that her name about your experience with an abusive coach who is now in jail forever Yay. Yay. Um, and just, I guess, thoughts on all of that in two I, two ways. One, do you think when you're in green rooms now or where you're, do you think the culture is changing at all in comedy after Louis and, Aziz, and, and Aziz and stuff? And I guess the other part would be about raising a boy in the world. Well, I don't think it's changing because of Louis or Aziz. I think it's changing because there's just a ton of female comics that are really funny and good. And, um, I think the comedy scene's changing a lot too. It, it used to be, you know, the clubs are still super male dominated, but there's so many of these alternative rooms that have like half women on the lineup all the time. And that's where your new comedy fans are going. You know, they're not going to clubs where all three of the comics are white guys and they have a drink minimum and a cover charge because they can't afford it. So they went to these shows where, you know, it's half women. It's a lot of, non-white people and um the shows are just more in my opinion they're more interesting um that 
that's where the new audience is going. And so I think clubs to get those people as they get older, they're going to have to, you know, shake their lineups up. And I think they, you know, people are slowly, but you know, it's, it, it takes a while, but it's definitely, I don't think it's, I think Louis, Louis, the Louis situation called attention to the fact that the most, there's not enough clubs hire women and it's, um, you know, I, I don't know that it's changed a ton, but I think some people are finally getting hip to it and going, Jesus, you know, look at this lineup. Look at the, look at these lineups. They're all dudes. So, you know, I don't know. I, I think the big change is coming from the audience that wants to see female comics. And it's coming from the amount, the sheer amount of funny female comics that are performing now. I, I, I didn't mean to posit it in terms of <laughs> look, look what these bad men did. Well, I mean, you know, they start conversation and stuff like that. And I think it does, you know, those kind of convert like to when women hear about this, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we've known this since we were, we were born and men are like, what really that happens? And, and, you know, they're shocked, <laughs> you know, so maybe it's, maybe they need to be shocked into knowing, you know, what the, what the crap we have to put up with all the time. And maybe that will make them, um, more, uh, observant and um, uh, just to kind of acknowledge that. I, I don't know. I hope. You know, we, I love, we had a very great relationship, even though we were on opposing sides on every single argument. This is a perfect example of me and my dad. He was a devout Catholic. So every Saturday night, he would write out a check to the Catholic church and leave it on the table and then go to bed. And he planned to take it to mass the next morning. And after you go to sleep, I would take the check and on the memo, I would write pedophile defense fund. Uh, it never got old. And it never got inaccurate. <laughs> uh, now my, my dad, we were, we were wildly apart politically. My dad was in the Tea Party, and uh, I'm a liberal. So we would always uh, have these uh, great arguments about everything. And uh, now, as a daughter, I'm very conflicted. Like, as a daughter, I'm, I'm devastated that my dad is gone. But as a liberal... <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's one less member of the Tea Party. <laughs> and don't, tell, don't be like, oh, that joke is mean. <laughs> Because I'm, I, I, I'm telling you, in a parallel universe, if Ann Coulter had a liberal father, she would make that exact same joke. Uh, that's a moot point, of course, because uh, if Ann Coulter had had a liberal father, he would have killed himself decades ago. <laughs> no, no one is that strong. <laughs> I learned that the phrase, I'm sorry for your loss, is perfect. It is a perfect condolence. You don't need to add anything to it. People would always go, were you guys close? You know, and uh, just so you know, I only, I only would write jokes about somebody I was very close to, you know, except for Ann Coulter. <laughs> I only made a joke about her because I look like her if she were a woman. In December, I went into... Boston, which, uh, again, I, I live near, but it isn't really my territory, and I don't know the old-school Boston comedian, old-boy network. And there was a uh, 
there was a benefit for Barry Crimmins, uh-huh. oh, yeah. uh, wife. And so it was all these like 60 year old <laughs> Boston comics. And it was interesting because the, the ones among them who've always been offensive, you know, they, they, they're going to do their material and a lot of it's really old material, but there was a certain feeling in the air, like, I'm going to offend you now, and it's not as okay as it was before. And it was it was just interesting to go see them. And they all seemed well-intentioned, but the, the, they weren't going to really grow new, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, there's a room for everybody. Every comic can have their audience, you know. Um, you know, every com- there's 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 a comic for everybody <laughs> and and some of these some comics that are you know it, it happens to every it can happen to every comic where you're all of a sudden out of step with pop culture and you're out of, out of step with what the audience wants to hear and either you change and you get good at listening to them and you get good at, at participating in in how the culture is moving or you sound really old and like a dinosaur on stage, and then you start getting oh, just dinosaur gigs, and only <laughs> so, you know. I mean, there's and there's people that are fine, and they make enough money to pay their bills, and they're only working kind of old gigs that, that performing for old people who also don't want to change. It's not even doesn't have to be an old thing, you know. I mean, it, it just it's just some people want to. Are, their mentality is going to stay the same and they'll, they'll find that audience and, you know, they can work $200 gigs for the rest of their lives and just pay their rent. And that's okay too, I guess. It is, yeah. The, the, I guess part, it, it is okay. And it is, I guess, you know, <laughs> uh, and how about your, your, your thoughts again in this, in this last year, I was just talking to another, uh, friend, uh, writer, Beth Lissick about, she's got like a 14 year old boy. Uh, um, but you have a much younger young man, right? Yeah, he's just eleven, so he's a couple years young. How how consciously do you raise him to be the more? I hadn't really thought about uh, it in terms of the way Michael put it that that men aren't. You know, I, I've thought about men who you know. Who, who are mute, especially when you live in New England. You, you you run into a lot of men who have no ability to express emotions, much more than you do, say, in New York, when at least the men right. can express anger. Uh, do you feel like you're you're consciously trying? Like, whereas women, his argument was, have been raised to see more of the the, the wide range of people they can be. Girls have when they're becoming women in the past thirty or forty years. And I'm just wondering if that if that resonated with you as a mom. Yeah, I mean, with my own son, you know, I, I don't feel like he's stifling emotions or anything. Um, you know, I just going by his personality, he's kind of kind of low key. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I don't have like, I don't tell him, you know, you're going to be a. I mean, he's going to be a man. He's a he's born with a penis. He's going to be a man. So, what you know what what kind of man I, I, I want, just want him to treat me right and be nice and polite. And that's always stuff I'm working on with him, you know, and say thank you and stuff like that. Uh, and, and do you feel any of those kind of, I see, I, I, I spend some time around teenagers at a, at a prep school and 
some of them, a young woman I work with recently was like, Jamie, why are all men suddenly such assholes? And I feel like, well, you know, I was like, well, they've always been assholes. They're just getting caught now, was my answer. But I'm just, I just wonder, maybe 11 is too young to really be aware of this past year or two. Oh, for him? Sure. Yeah. In fact, I, I was just telling him about 9-11 yesterday. Uh, but the same young woman, she's a senior now. Uh, her dad died uh, in the towers. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, it's it's become, you know, ostensibly, even though we haven't talked about it at all, this podcast is about fame. And at one point, uh, I think I, I've done I've, I've recorded a couple of former high school students after they graduate. And she's expressed a willingness to talk about how this has always been this weird kind of people find out who she is, you know, wherever she's gone in life. But that that, that does make me want to get to my few little famey questions. Okay. First of all, you are coming up on 30 years of doing stand-up, right? There's something super impressive about that to me. Oh, thanks. Are there any particular icons or idols who appreciated or who you would have wanted to appreciate or who you still hope will appreciate your work? Oh. Any moments of someone recognizing like, yeah, good set. And you're like, wow. Gosh, I don't know. Like, um... I, I've already, I guess I've sort of realized my place isn't front and center in comedy. It's sort of on the side, but it's okay, you know. Um, Any individual who you looked up to? Well, I, you know, it's when I got Conan O'Brien's, you know, seal of approval, that was pretty sweet. <laughs> um, and then I guess, you know, it would have always been nice to have gotten, you know, uh, Dan Letterman and had had him say nice set or something like that. Oh, I had a Conan question. That's, this is this is an outsider question. Yeah. So, is is Conan your nine? Is it like your salaried nine to five gig? Yeah. Or whatever hours. So on IMDb, what episodes are you credited for? Oh, I I these credits are kind of weird. But like when you're a, a staff writer, they just because otherwise. You, you know, they'd have to list like 800 shows. So I guess they just list a couple and then they give up. But I mean, I'm a, I've been a staff writer on Conan since he went to TBS. So on every show since he started in 2010. Um, have writing, has the writing room changed in the past year? No, I mean, it's the same people I've known for, you know, seven years. So no one, I, I was never sexually harassed or anything. So I, I, I mean, it's just, a, they're all my friends. It's just a bunch of people I know pretty well so you talked about you know having your place in your space in the in the in the comedy world in terms of success from what everything I hear here you're talking to people you seem very happy and comfortable with that place but what would be is you know what would be an ideal position to be in say okay 10 years from now how much is too much and how much is just right in terms of fame or is it just about making a better living? I don't know. I, I don't think of it like that. I think like, I hope I'm still performing. I hope I'm still writing well. And I hope I, I hope I can still make a living as a standup. Like, like that to me is always um, the biggest goal is to make a living in comedy, you know? And uh, so I, cause I know so many 
I mean, you know, before I got my writing job, I was sort of like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I, 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 I wasn't able to pay, you know, have a child and be on the road at the same time. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I sh- probably should have like those big goals that you have on a vision board, but I, I feel like if I'm still telling jokes and getting laughs and, and making a living doing that, I'm, 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 a, I'm ahead. You definitely are. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think part of writing dead people suck was about giving dad some immortality and some, Oh, sure. Cause my, my dad's brother was sort of well-known within a certain community. He, he was the CEO of this department store called Mervyn's. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And so my dad's brother was pretty, you know, he was pretty wealthy and pretty famous within that world, you know, and like he met, he met president Reagan and, and I always felt like my dad was sort of like, you know, the second place brother, he's much younger and, you know, he was just an engineer and he didn't, he, he, he was just trying to pay his bills. And, uh, so I always felt a little protective of my dad, like, oh, you know, he's, he doesn't get the same, you know, has, doesn't, isn't the same profile as my uncle. And, uh, so maybe, maybe it's a little bit of that, like, well, you know what? I wrote a book about you. So there you go. <laughs> and, and, and is your uncle still alive? No, my uncle, my uncle, he was born in 1923. So he's not there. <laughs> no, I mean, no, and he was the nicest guy. More of a daughter being like, just feeling like, oh, I want my dad to be the best. And, uh, you know, feeling like maybe other people, you know, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. And it, it, and you do make him the best. And it's a very sweet book. And I feel very, very lucky in that I haven't had to wrestle with, you know, I have, you know, I have my dad and pretty much no other close family members. Uh, we're not, you know, a very close family. So I haven't had to wrestle with a lot of friends have with the, oh, with the Trumpy relatives. And it sounds like you and your sister both never, you know, were like, I hate you now, or gave up on him, even though it sounds like his politics were really painful. He, it was all, it was all 9-11 based. I mean, he was a regular Republican till September 11th. <clears throat> and then he went bananas, like a lot of old guys. The other, But he wasn't like that all the time. Like, you know, you just, just never brought up, uh, you know, politics. And, it, and my dad had plenty of other interests and things you could talk about. He was a dog lover and, you know, he was a good, he was a great guy, you know, and he just, you know, he, he just sometimes you're like, oh my God, I can't believe you fell for that. You know, it's weird. I think I, I get, you know, I don't know if it's that generation. They, they went through a war and a depression, you know, world war and depression and all that. Maybe they're more susceptible to, to that sort of thinking. I I don't know, but, um, but you know, that was just a tiny part of him and he was such a great dad. And so supportive and loyal to us that of course we wouldn't, we forgot about it. (laughs) Did, did this start out? Did the book projects, I know it started, I don't know if it started as, but the first thing I think I know existed was the 45 jokes. Yeah. I did a a special for CISO and uh, it's, um, sort of trapped in CISO land because CISO went out of business, but I couldn't, I had a hard time selling the special 
for a long time. And so I pitched a book instead. And when I, it was about, you know, a couple, a couple months into writing the book and then the special got sold. So that was, you know, cool. <laughs> but, um, they were, they're two pretty different. Um, there's a couple jokes I used in the special that I kept in the book. Cause I just felt like they were funny enough and they worked on paper, but this is, this is a lot more memoir. It, you know, the, the stand-up special is meant to be jokes you can tell on a Friday night in front of a drunk crowd. And this book is something that you can read in bed, you know, it's a different vibe. Yeah. In bed or as, uh, <laughs> Jackie said, uh, recently in, in the bathroom and the toilet. Yeah. They're very short chapters. They're, these are, if you take one shit a day, you can read this book in a month. Yep. And you can, you know, flip around like the each chain. Yeah. Also, <laughs> do you feel like did, did finishing this, does it make you be like, okay, what's the next book? Or it was like, that was fun. No, it wasn't fun. And I don't want to write another book. <laughs> no, right now I just kind of want to, uh, work on my stand up and just sort of hang out with my son, you know, while he still wants to hang out with me. Um, and, uh, that's, that's enough. I, I, the writing the book was a lot of extra stress on top of being a parent and a comic and writing for Conan. And I'm glad it's, it's over with. Like I, sometimes I still wake up and I go, wait, I don't have to write something right now. And I'm so happy. <laughs> I feel like I'm gonna hang up the phone and have questions about writing for Conan. For the for the annoying fan boy or girl who would ask, "What's it like? What's it like? You've done it for years now, but I mean, what, what's the day to day job like?" And then I'll and then I'll, I'll oh, that's right. It it isn't ten thirty. You and you're very bi coastal, but you're in California right now, right? I'm in California, but my son did just come home, so. Uh... Okay, well then I'll I'll let you off after you if you give me a a tiny little taste of that. Sure, we um we usually start around nine thirty, and uh, I'm part of the monologue team, and there's three of us now, and we write a lot of we rewrite <clears throat> premises, which are kind of just setups based on the news we read, and we share our premises, and then we all write jokes off of them. <clears throat> we get together around noon, we read the jokes out loud, and then we send them to Conan. Conan sends them back, tells us which ones he liked, and, you know, he'll pick like eight out of 40. And then um, then we do another round of that. And then we get to the final monologue meeting around four and kind of go over the ones that we have. And hopefully we have enough for a, a pretty nice monologue. Um, and we do that four times a week. And then Friday we come in and it's more relaxed because we don't tape a show that night. So it's like <clears throat> the workday is like 10 to 5 or something. How many how many jokes in a monologue about? Well, it's weird. Like it used to be 10 and now it's we're down to maybe like 6 or something. I think he's feeling – I think he's doing less jokes in the monologue right now uh, and kind of doing more audience talk – kind of like – talking to the audience a little bit. I think he really likes that. And the audience goes crazy for it. So, uh, but sometimes they want some more jokes. It kind of, it, it fluctuates. I'd say between on a low, low end five and, and on a, a nice fat day, like 12. Did you all go to Haiti or were you, or were you back home? No, he just took two writers to Haiti, but uh, they're the ones that go with him on all the trips. It's Jesse Gaskell and Jose Arroyo, and they've gone with him to all the trips. The only one I went on was with Brian Kiley, and we went to uh, Guitar, 
um, when we did shows at the uh, an Air Force base. And so Brian and I each did like 15 minutes in front of Conan, and then Conan closed the show out. Well, thanks. It's been great getting to know you this past week, and I'll see you <laughs> either at a reading or at a show someday. Thank you, Jamie. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Bye. You can find all things Laurie Kilmartin at Kilmartin.com. That's K-I-L, just one L, Martin.com. And you can find her memoir, Dead People Suck, where books are sold. You can find us at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 15-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. And again, now on Spotify by searching for 15 minutes, etc., etc., our new host is Pippa. Find them at pippa.io. Our theme song is by Christian Kandari. Ed Patnode is the engineer. This is 15 Minutes. I'm... Jamie Berger. 